Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutrition practitioner, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. I'm excited about today's podcast, but before we jump in, I wanted to remind you to download this month's special gift at drjockersgift.com. From keto meal plans, smoothie recipes, to fasting quick start guides, we have a new complimentary gift every single month. To get your gift, simply visit drjockersgift.com. That's D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S-G-I-F-T.com. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. I wanted to take a moment and tell you about one of my favorite companies, Paleo Valley. They make some of the world's best health products, and I really love their Essential C Complex which is one of the only immune boosting products on the market that's made from whole food sources of vitamin C that your body can effectively absorb. You see, most vitamin C products only contain a fraction of vitamin C called ascorbic acid. This is the synthetic form of vitamin C and it's often processed with GMO corn. With Essential C Complex, you get the full spectrum of vitamin C with all the additional nutrients, minerals, and bioflavonoids that make it so powerful in the first place, the way nature intended. Paleo Valley Essential C Complex contains three of the most potent sources of vitamin C on the planet, the unripe acerola cherry, the amla berry, and the kamu kamu berry. The acerola cherry alone is 120 times more potent than an orange. The daily recommended amount of vitamin C was decided upon based on the amount of vitamin C you need to not get scurvy, not really the amount you need for a stronger immune system. And this is why Paleo Valley Essential C Complex contains 750% of your daily recommended value of vitamin C, completely sourced from nature, so you can thrive, not just survive. You see, vitamin C is an extremely fragile nutrient and it can very easily lose potency if it's not processed correctly. So Paleo Valley has worked with the most responsible manufacturers they could find to gently break down each of these fruits. And to guarantee no vitamin C was lost in the processing, they recruited a non-biased third-party tester to confirm it contains the amount they put on the label. Because in times like these, when everything seems uncertain, your immune system shouldn't be. Paleo Valley Essential C Complex is non-GMO, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and made with all organic superfoods. No fillers or flow agents that you'll find in most supplements. Nothing weird, just food. Check out paleovalley.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS, just simply my last name, JOCKERS, J-O-C-K-E-R-S today to get 15% off your order. This podcast is an audio recording of one of my most popular YouTube videos all about functional blood analysis. If you want to understand what's going on when you look at your complete blood count, uh, your liver enzymes, your uh, comprehensive metabolic panel, I'm going to go over that in this podcast. You guys are going to learn some really valuable insights on how to analyze this routine lab work, things that most doctors will never tell you because honestly, they have never not been taught this either. And so you're going to get so much valuable information here. Please share this with people that you know and that you care about. And also go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. So just scroll to the bottom of your podcast player. That's where you can leave the review. And when you do that, that helps us reach more people and impact more lives. Thanks so much. And let's go into the show. Well, hey there. Today we are talking about functional blood analysis and optimal ranges. And you are going to learn in this presentation how to read your complete blood count and your comprehensive metabolic panel. These are very inexpensive labs that you can get, very inexpensive blood draws. 
We're going to talk about the difference between medical and functional lab ranges. So important to understand. So we're going to go into that. We're going to talk about different types of functional anemias. Anemias are really important to understand, and they may be causing fatigue and other unwanted issues in your body. So we're going to understand that. And also low stomach acid signs. This is a, an epidemic of people that are just are not producing enough digestive juices like stomach acid. And we're going to talk about some of the signs that you may see on labs to help indicate that. We're also going to look at functional signs for inflammation and chronic infections as well. So you guys are going to get a lot out of this. And of course, this video is not meant to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. And it's for informational purposes only. The video is not a treatment protocol and does not replace a consultation with a healthcare practitioner. You are fully responsible for what you do or don't do with the information in this presentation. And so when we look at medical blood analysis, the main goal there is to be able to diagnose a disease state. It has very wide lab ranges. And if you fall, you know, either on either side of those very wide ranges, you have some sort of pathology or disease state and they're flagged. It's very easy to see them because there's markers around them on the labs. Whereas when we're looking at functional blood analysis, we're not looking for disease states, although in some cases we may see that. We are really looking for optimal health and if there's functional imbalances. So long before a disease happens, there is a functional imbalance that causes dysfunction in the body and the person doesn't feel good. They have different symptoms, um, you know, different, different issues that are, that are going on. And they may not even, you know, they may not know it. And most medical practitioners are not trained to diagnose it. And so when we look at the labs, we really want them in this optimal range. And the way that they come up with lab ranges is they actually just take, you know, a wide, you know, just basically a group of people that have gone to labs to get labs drawn. And they're looking at kind of symptom charts and questionnaires that they're filling out. And they're coming up with, okay, this person has, you know, this, this number of symptoms and these issues. So they're, they must have hypothyroidism, right? And so they're coming up with these ranges, but they're really looking at sick people. They're not really looking at healthy um, people. And so, cause you know, in the past, when they did these studies, healthy people weren't going to get labs. This is very recent that healthy people are looking to optimize their health. And the reason why is because they understand now that functional doctors, functional practitioners are able to identify functional imbalances. So that's what can incentivize a healthy person to go get a lab so they can understand, am I functionally balanced? Am I functionally imbalanced? And that's really what we're looking at here. And that's what we're going to talk about in this presentation are where the functional lab ranges are and where we want to be. So how, how are we going to be at our optimal level? And so when we look at this chart right here, we see, okay, pathologically low. When we get to the pathological state, either too high or too low, that's when we know the cells, tissues, and organs may be damaged, right? There's already damage going on. We want to be in that optimal zone. And if we are functionally imbalanced, then we really address it with healthy lifestyle habits and natural remedies. Whereas if we're pathologically high or low, we may need, you know, invasive drugs, different surgeries and things like that. And so we want to be able to catch those functional imbalances so we can take action now, use natural remedies, herbs, nutrients, healthy lifestyle habits to get back into optimal function. And so let's start by looking at the complete blood count and your average uh, percentages when they're looking at this, when we're looking at the blood, you've got plasma, which is roughly 55%, your white blood cells and platelets, you know, in, in that 4% range, red blood cells, 41%. Um, and that helps to identify cases of anemia, infections, blood clotting disorders, and immune disorders. And so when we look at the white blood cells, they should be between five and eight. Okay, so that's the typical range between five and eight. If they are very high, again, you know, if it's a pathological range, it's going to be flagged. Okay. If it's very low, it's going to be flagged. I don't remember the pathological range off the top of my head here, um, but the functional range is five to eight. And so when it gets above eight, it indicates either an increased production of white blood cells to fight an infection, a reaction to a drug that increases white blood cell production, or a disease of the bone marrow. Um, or some sort of immune system disorder that increases white blood cell production. Low white blood cells typically indicates leaky gut and a chronic infection, especially from a functional perspective. 
We're really thinking leaky gut, chronic infection that has worn down the body's immune system. And it can also be related to viral infections that temporarily disrupt bone marrow function. Cancer and other diseases can damage bone marrow, autoimmune disorders, can destroy white blood cells or bone marrow cells. So, you know, those are all things to consider chemotherapy, different drugs. Uh, so those are all things to kind of rule out, but your average person that's coming in, they, um, you know, they may have immune suppression coming from leaky gut. Now I see that a lot. Um, and that, you know, is, is easily seen just by looking at the white blood cells. And so when we're looking at the different types of white blood cells, we've got neutrophils, which are the ones that we have in the most abundant amount. And they are our main immune defense. They're first to respond to bacteria or viruses. We also have uh, eosinophils, which when I think about that, I think about parasites and allergens. Basophils are an inflammatory response, typically associated with histamine. Uh, so again, allergens. Monocytes are associated with immune surveillance. They help clean up dead cells. They help break down, destroy dead cells, going through the, the process of apoptosis, for example. And monocytes can be elevated in certain, certain issues, certain disorders, like uh, certain types of cancers, as well as things like Epstein-Barr virus, which they call mononucleosis because of the elevations in monocytes. Um, and also just issues with inflammation. And then you've got lymphocytes. Lymphocytes are memory cells that may live for years. You've got your B lymphocytes, which are your antibodies, and your T lymphocytes, which are your T cells. Um, and so they're the cellular immune response, whereas the B sites, B, B lymphocytes are your antibodies, your antibody production. So when we look at the overall percentages, your neutrophils should be between 40 to 60%. If it's high, higher than that, I think inflammation, infection, bacteria. Now, I always want to make sure the white blood cell count is between five and eight to really, that, that gives more validity to these. But still, I look at this to help me understand, okay, what is causing this sort of uh, possible functional imbalance in the immune system. Lymphocytes should be between 20 and 40%. If it's high, could be a viral issue like Epstein-Barr. But if it's low, if it's under 20%, it could also be related to a virus. Some viruses cause lymphocytes to go low, and it could be a bacterial infection as well. Monocytes, they should be between 4 and 7%. If it's high, we think mononucleosis, Epstein-Barr or various types of cancers. And usually with cancers, you're not just gonna see the monocytes being elevated, you are gonna see an entire skewing and usually the white blood cells are gonna either be really low or really high. So, um, so if it's just you know an elevation of the monocytes, we don't get overly concerned about that from a cancer perspective, but certainly could be something related to mononucleosis or to inflammation. Eosinophils, zero to 3%. And really, you know, I, I even 3% to me is kind of high for eosinophils. So I'm thinking allergy or parasite and basophils, I usually see at 0%. So if basophils are elevated, if they're really up above 1%, we got to be thinking histamine issues, allergies. Um, and so that's what we have to be looking at there. Now your neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, you can actually take your neutrophils, divide them, by your lymphocytes, and you're taking the absolute counts here, so not the percentages. And when you do that, you come up with a number, right? And that optimal level should be 1.2 to 2.0. So you're gonna have more neutrophils and lymphocytes, okay? They're the two most abundant that you find, but you're gonna have more neutrophils and lymphocytes, but it shouldn't be more than twice as much. If it is, it's a sign of inflammation in the system and could be a sign of some sort of infection that's driving that inflammation. Now, let's talk about anemia. Anemia is super important to understand. In fact, if you don't get anemia addressed, you really, you really can't heal. And so we've got to address anemia. Most classic symptoms are things like shortness of breath, fatigue, cold hands and feet, headaches, dizziness, irregular heartbeats, chest pain, weakness. So anemia is much more common in women than men particularly menstruating females, because a lot of women have heavy menstruation, so they lose a lot of blood cells. So during that part of their cycle, they oftentimes dip into the anemic um, range and they feel weak, they have fatigue, they have shortness of breath, they have a lot of different issues like that. But there are many factors that can cause anemia and we're gonna go into that here as we go on. Now, let's look at hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is an Iron is, is made out of iron and it's the site of oxygen 
building. So it's a complex structure with iron as the binding mineral, and it's what binds oxygen and brings it to the cells. So you have several hundred million hemoglobin molecules in every red blood cell. Amazing to think about that. If you have very low levels, you know, that's some sort of a microcytic anemia. Okay. And so red blood cell levels, they should be between usually four and five. Now for menstruating women, they're going to be a little bit lower. So we look at it between four and 4.5. It's normal to, for a menstruating female to have slightly lower red blood cells than a man or a menopausal woman. So that's good to understand. Uh, when we're looking at those functional ranges, we want to look at that. Very low levels of red blood cells. When we see that, we're thinking significant blood loss, but also could be something like hemolytic anemia where the body is destroying blood cells, right? And so hemoglobin, hemoglobin carries the oxygen again to the cell mitochondria for ATP production. It takes carbon dioxide to the lungs. For women should be 13.5 to 14.5, particularly menstruating females. And then for men, 14 to 15 grams per deciliter. So again, slightly lower for menstruating females. So we've got to look at that. Now, hematocrit, Okay, that is the fraction of the whole blood volume that consists of red blood cells. So when we're looking at blood volume, there's a certain percentage of plasma and there's a certain percentage of red blood cells, right? White blood cells, like we talked about before. So hematocrit, the females should be 37 to 44%, males 39 to 45%. High hematocrit is typically dehydration, so important to understand, but could also be poly polycythemia vera, which is an overproduction of hemoglobin. So we can look at other markers for dehydration, like albumin, for example. Sometimes we'll see high albumin levels with dehydration. We might see high minerals, like high sodium and potassium. Oftentimes we'll see those inverse, and that can be related to adrenal function. But if we see high sodium and potassium together, then that's typically a sign of dehydration. Low hematocrit is typically bleeding. Anemia could be microcytic or megaloblastic, which is related to uh, microcytic is going to be very, very small um, blood, blood cells related to iron deficiency, whereas megaloblastic is very large shaped uh, blood cells related to B12 deficiency. Could also be overhydration or sickle cell anemia can actually show up as low hematocrit as well. So now we're going to look at the volume of the blood cells. And so this has a lot to do with our B12 status because basically B12, vitamin B12 and folate and B6 to a more minor degree help with the maturity. They go through the methylation process and they help mature these blood cells. And when the blood cells mature, they go from kind of a large abnormal shape to a smaller shape that is better at grabbing and delivering oxygen to the cells and taking carbon dioxide to the lungs. So they should have this optimal uh, fluid volume. And so the mean corpuscular volume should be 85 to 92. That's your MCV. That's really the one we're looking at MCV, MCH, MCHC, but MCV is one, it's probably the main one that we're looking at here. Okay. And so when we see some sort of microcytic anemia, that that's when the MCV is really low, okay? And it, and it will be flagged if it's a true anemia, but it could be a functional imbalance and just be under that 85, but not to the point where it's flagged, okay? So again, that's associated with low B12, folate. You can look at homocysteine as another marker we can look at. We, we wanna see that between six and nine. So if it's up over nine, that's another sign of poor methylation so that you can look at that. MCH and MCHC, this is the average mass of the hemoglobin per red blood cell in a sample of blood. Again, high levels kind of correlates with the MCV. Low levels would be microcytic anemia, high levels megaloblastic anemia, or a megaloblastic functional anemia, right? Which isn't a true diagnostic anemia. So we always have to differentiate that too. When there's a functional imbalance, it may not be a diagnostic uh, disease, right? So we can't say, okay, you know, you don't have optimal level of thyroid hormone. You may not have hypothyroidism and have that diagnosis, but you have a functionally 
functional poor thyroid function, right? Something along those lines um, is the way that we would term it or a functionally low thyroid. Um, and so kind of the same thing with anemia, functional, functional megaloblastic anemic tendencies or functional microcytic anemic tendencies. Now, when we're looking at the red blood cell width, this can be a marker of inflammation. So high red blood cell width normally should be between 11.5 to 13%. A high width can be due to inflammation, oxidative stress, vitamin B12 and folate deficiencies. So for B12 and folate, we're going to look at the MCV and the MCHC and your homocysteine and different things like that. Um, you know, if we're not seeing abnormalities there, it's probably just related to inflammation and oxidative stress. Whereas low red blood cell width can be due to anemia, leukemia, or vitamin B6 deficiencies. So we have to look at that as well and address that. Now, platelets, platelets play a very important role in blood clotting, which prevents against hemorrhage, right? So if we didn't have, if we don't have enough platelets, we can have a hemorrhage and really just bleed out on the inside or on the outside of our body. And so platelets are super critical, but we don't want too much platelets because platelets also will clot blood, will cause an overclotting factor. And so normally, so high platelets, if we have very high platelets, like up over 400, that's a sign of co a coagulation disorder called thrombocytosis. It's typically due to chronic inflammation. Our ideal range is 175 to 250, okay? 175 to 250, low platelet levels are called thrombocytopenia. It's associated with either making too little from certain cancers, for example, or increased destruction, which would be an autoimmune condition, right? Uh, kind of similar to hemolytic anemia. Serum iron. Serum iron is an important thing to test. Now, this is not tested on the complete blood count. You'll have to add in an iron panel, but it's inexpensive. It's definitely an important thing to look at to help understand more about what's happening. Um, you know, especially if you've had a history of anemia, we're concerned about that. Definitely add in the serum iron. Again, it's the amount of iron in the blood that's bound to transferrin. Transferrin is uh, a binding uh, protein, okay, and it helps transport iron. Uh, but it's not, serum iron is not an accurate representation of total iron present in the body. Ferritin is a better indicator of iron deficiency due to iron being bound up in different forms that are highly variable. So serum iron is elevated with hemochromatosis, which uh, occurs when the body is overloaded with iron, when the body has iron overload. So your clinical lab range, 27 to 159. Your functional lab range, though, is one is 85 to 130. So that's where we're looking at it. That's where we want it to be between that 85 to 130. Now, your total iron binding capacity, this measures a red blood cell's capacity to bind to transferrin. It's kind of like an indirect way of looking at this binding protein, transferrin. Um, so low iron binding ca uh, capacity would be kind of equivalent to low transferrin. And that's, the, you know, so there's more binding capacity, I guess you could say. So uh, elevated iron levels, liver disease, infections. Um, TIBC may be normal in anemia associated with chronic disease. And I'm going to have a chart where we're going to look at all of that. But the functional range is 250 to 350. Okay, clinical lab, lab range, 250 to 450. Uh, functional lab range 250 to 350. Ferritin. Ferritin is an intracellular protein that stores iron and it releases it in a controlled fashion. Okay, now the thing with ferritin is it will go up, it will try to, for example, hold on to iron and prevent parasites, for example. Some parasites live on, on ferritin, so sometimes it will go up when there's some sort of infection, right, or liver disease, alcohol excess. Um, and other inflammatory conditions, it can go up. So it's a marker for low iron, right? But also it can be a marker for inflammation, oxidative stress. So your ideal ranges are between 75 and 150 for men and 50 and 150 for women. So if you see it up over 150, we're thinking inflammation, possible infection, possible issues going on with the liver. Um, if we're seeing it low, right? Under, you know, 75 for men, under 50 for women, we're thinking some sort of, um, you know, anemia, some sort of 
a functional anemia, right? May not, again, may not be, you know, a full anemia, but somewhere the woman is losing blood or the man is losing blood or these blood cells are being, um, or, you know, we're just don't have enough iron, I should say. It's not, not really necessarily losing blood, although yes, definitely could be losing blood. And that's what's causing more iron to be taken from ferritin to be able to be used to produce the hemoglobin. However, um, it may not necessarily be, uh, you know, related to blood loss, but either way, we're losing the ferritin. And so when we look at this little chart right here, and this is, this is complicated, but with hemochromatosis, that is a genetic condition where we are storing too much iron. Okay. And so we'll see the serum iron, serum ferritin, both elevated, the um, iron saturation percentage, which I guess I didn't talk about that. Um, but the iron saturation percentage will be elevated. The total iron binding capacity and the transferrin will be low. All right. So there's not much, you know, basically there's, there's not much capacity, right? Because we have so much iron in our system, but hemoglobin will be normal. Again, hemoglobin's more so elevating due to dehydration, more so than an iron overload. Now there's two other similar conditions. Um, you've got the porphyria, the porphyria condition, and also there is African iron overload or African siderosis, where very similar, in fact, you know, hemochromatosis is a component of those uh, disorders. Iron deficiency anemia, we see iron down, we see iron saturation percentage down. Okay, now iron saturation percentage, pretty sure we want that uh, up over 15%. Okay, so somewhere around, uh, I believe it's like 15 to 45%, somewhere in that range. But, um, but yeah, so we want to have a certain amount of saturation in there. Uh, so, and then of transferrin and then, you know, your iron with iron deficiency anemia, you have too low a saturation percentage, right? So these are inversely related, meaning that the lower the TIBC, the higher the iron saturation percentage and, and, and the opposite, right? So the lower the saturation percentage, the higher the binding capacity, right? More capacity to saturate right? When the saturation is low and then transferrin here is elevated um, and hemoglobin because the body's, you know, trying to basically get iron to the system, but, uh, but we just don't have enough iron. And then hemoglobin is down because we don't have enough iron to produce it. So uh, looking at different other different types of anemia, you know, they all, all have kind of their, their, their patterns, right? So like with sideroblastic anemia, we're not producing enough transferrin. So even though the, you know, the iron saturation percentage is high, we're not producing enough hemoglobin. Um, let's see, with vitamin B12 deficiency down here at the at the very bottom, we are we have enough iron. We're either normal or high. We have enough ferritin, normal or high. We have enough uh, iron saturation percentage. You know, we're not, we don't have too much bound um, iron, but we're still not able to produce the hemoglobin that we need. And part of that's because of the, the maturation process in the bone marrow is down. And so that would be the problem there in that case. So different types of anemias, let's talk about them a little bit. Microcytic anemia, this is the most common type of anemia worldwide. It's characterized by small, often hypochromic or pale, so not enough iron in there, red blood cells in a peripheral blood smear. This type of anemia is mostly caused by an iron deficit. This deficit occurs because either the body is not getting enough iron or it's not absorbing it properly. Iron is a necessity for hemoglobin production. Remember, hemoglobin is what brings oxygen to the cells, to the mitochondria. Megaloblastic anemia, in addition to iron, your body needs folate and B12 to produce enough healthy red blood cells. A diet lacking in those and other key nutrients can cause decreased red blood cell production. And some people just don't consume enough B12, right? And, and their bodies, or they consume enough, but their bodies aren't able to process the vitamin. For example, if you have um, low stomach acid, you're not going to be able to absorb B12. You need intrinsic factor, which is a protein in the stomach to be able to absorb it. And uh, some people have autoimmunity, for example, to intrinsic factor, or they have an H. pylori infection in their stomach, not allowing them to produce enough stomach acid. 
So they can be eating meat and different things that are associated with B12, but not absorbing it well. Other types of anemia, there's anemia of chronic disease, uh, such as cancer, HIV, AIDS, rheumatoid arthritis, kidney disease, Crohn's disease, and other chronic inflammatory diseases that can interfere with the production of red blood cells. And back to this pattern here, there's anemia of chronic disease where your serum iron is down, but your ferritin is either normal or up, right? So unusual pattern. And so normally, you know, that ferritin is going to transfer some of that iron into the serum iron. And then our iron percentage is down, of course, our hemoglobin is down. So, you know, if you're seeing ferritin normal or high, however, you know, all those other markers are down, we're thinking anemia of chronic disease. So again, some sort of cancer or uh, autoimmune condition or something along those lines um, that would cause that. Aplastic anemia, this is a rare life-threatening anemia, occurs when your body does not produce enough red blood cells. Causes of aplastic anemia include infections, certain medications, autoimmune diseases, and exposure to toxic chemicals. Anemia is associated with bone marrow disease. A variety of diseases such as leukemia, myelofibrosis can cause anemia by affecting blood production in your bone marrow. So that's a, you know, can be a life-threatening type of disease. Hemolytic anemias, uh, that's a group of anemias developed when red blood cells are destroyed faster than bone marrow can replace them. Certain blood diseases increase red blood cell production or destruction. You can inherit a hemolytic anemia or you can develop it later in life. Sickle cell anemia, um, you know, again, the, the, the shape of the blood cell takes on a, a unique, for, a unique uh, shape. And that's actually interesting because sickle cell anemia, the genetic trait is common in areas of Africa where malaria is more common. And it actually provides a protective mechanism against malaria and the, that malaria is a disease of the blood vessels or the blood cells, I should say. And so, um, so it helps prevent against the infection of these types of uh, microorganisms into the blood cells. So interesting. All right, let's talk about the development of anemia. Phase one is early iron storage depletion. It's marked by low ferritin levels. So that's usually, you know, as iron depletion starts to go down, ferritin we typically start to see go down, right? And you'll see this with a lot of menstruating females um, where they're, Everything will look good except for their ferritin will be low, right? And that's kind of that phase one. Phase two, iron deficiency, non-anemia, okay, marked by low ferritin, low iron. So it's not, you know, again, not in anemia yet, but it's, we're seeing low ferritin and now low iron. So the, the um, ferritin is supposed to turn into, right? It's supposed to kind of, it's a storage form of iron. And it gives your serum iron, right? So it gives to your serum iron. So a serum iron, if we need more serum iron, we take it from our ferritin. So now we're low ferritin, low iron, low iron saturation. And now we've got more binding sites, right? More total iron binding capacity. Phase three is iron deficiency anemia. It's marked by low red blood cells, hemoglobin, hematocrit. So now all those start going down. We see the MCV, MCH. Uh, MCHC, the ferritin iron, iron saturation, elevated TIBC. Phase four, you know, which would be, um, you know, phase would be like phase three, except, you know, it, it not in a non iron deficient state, but a B12 deficient state. It's marked by high MCV, MCH, and MCHC, and the individual needs B12, folate, and B6. I just wanted to take a moment and interrupt this podcast to tell you about the perfect keto bars, which are great tasting keto-friendly bars with only three grams of net carbs and balanced keto macros. They taste amazing and they use collagen protein, which is a type of protein that helps support your joints, your skin, your hair, your nails, and your gut lining. These bars are gluten-free, they're dairy-free, they have no added sugars, preservatives, or artificial ingredients. They help to keep your blood sugar balanced and stable, and they taste amazing. My favorite flavor is the peanut butter chocolate chip, but they have other great flavors as well, like the salted caramel, the almond butter brownie, the chocolate chip cookie dough, and the lemon poppy seed. You guys will love these bars. Check them out at perfectketo.com forward slash DRJ and use the coupon code JOCKERS at checkout to get 20% off your order today.
So now let's go into the comprehensive metabolic panel. Okay, this is looking at glucose, calcium, sodium, chloride, potassium, carbon dioxide, uh, blood, urea, nitrogen, creatinine, bilirubin, total protein, albumin, globulin. And we're going to look at some liver enzymes as well, ALP, AST, and ALT. So test is used to look at liver disease, kidney disease, blood sugar disorders, electrolyte imbalances, and more. So they're also you know, looking at glucose and things like that. I'm going to do blood sugar in a different video. So you guys will be able to see a different video where I go more detail about blood sugar. But here we're looking at total blood proteins. Your clinical range is typically between 6 and 8.5. And we're looking at the total of your albumins and your globulins. Your albumins are a protein that helps maintain osmotic pressure, uh, whereas your globulins, they also help bind to you know different hormones and things like that and help move them throughout the body. And globulins are your immunoglobins, right? So they're part of your immune system. And so reasons why you might have high functional total proteins, high protein diet, increased uric acid levels, and low stomach acid levels. So we'll talk about all of those. Your functional range is 6.9 to 7.4. And you know, so the reasons why you have high, again, high protein, too much increased uric acid levels, low stomach acid levels, and reasons for low functional total proteins, low protein diet, liver dysfunction, because the liver produces your albumin, and low stomach acid levels, right? So you need stomach acid to be able to absorb protein effectively. So in some cases, you may have too much uh, protein in your blood, which can also be associated with leaky gut, or you're not able to break down and produce these proteins, so you have low stomach acid levels. Um, what is serum albumin? Again, a critical blood protein that helps move small molecules and nutrients through the blood. That includes electrolytes, antioxidants, hormones, plays a critical role in stabilizing the osmotic pressure in the blood so fluid doesn't leak out into the tissues. So low albumin can lead to edema in the lower extremities. A lot of people, when they have low albumin, they, they're not moving, their circulation slows down, they get more fluid in those lower extremities. Your optimal levels are between four and five grams per deciliter. Globulin, on the other hand, is a protein that makes up your blood cells, including hemoglobin, antibodies, and blood clotting. Low HCL levels can increase your risk of elevated levels of globulin. So your hemoglobin, for example, um, your immunoglobins, while gut issues or liver problems can lead to low levels. The optimal range for globulin is between 2.4 and 2.8 grams per deciliter. High levels indicate low stomach acid, parasites, or cancer. Low levels indicate liver dysfunction, leaky gut, gut problems, and low stomach acid. So again, low stomach acid can, and I'm going to give you a whole low stomach acid pattern uh, later on in this presentation, but you can see it can play on either side of these things. So when we're looking at the albumin to globulin ratio or the AG ratio, so we're dividing albumin by globulin, optimal levels are between 1.5 and 2.0. A high ratio, high albumin to globulin ratio, we think dehydration. Okay, that's probably the number one reason for that, but could also be low stomach acid levels. So again, Looking at dehydration, we may also look at what your sodium and potassium levels look like. If they're both high as well, we're thinking dehydration. If not, could be low stomach acid levels. In low albumin to globulin ratio, so that means you know your albumin is dropping down, your globulins are going up. We think infections. Okay, we think liver disease because again, the liver produces that albumin. Heart failure, right? Cancer, right? So these are all issues there. Um, functional low globulins, most common reason for this pattern where you have low globulin, but normal albumin to globulin ratio, we're thinking stomach, low stomach acid, normal globulin with a high albumin globulin ratio. So globulin's normal, it's in that 2.4 to 2.8 range, but the albumin to globulin ratio is high. We're thinking dehydration. Okay. So important things to look at, important imbalances. Now, blood, urea, nitrogen, this is basically how your body helps to flush out excess ammonia, nitrogen, and urea, right? And um, your functional, now your clinical range is very wide, 6 to 24. And if you have high levels, it's a kidney or liver problem. If your BUN, your creatinine, and your phosphorus levels are high, or your 
glomerular filtration rate is low, and we'll talk about these as well, it's reflective of a kidney problem. Low BUN, okay, so if it's under six, we're thinking malnutrition or celiac disease. We're not getting enough protein. Ammonia is part of the protein metabolism cycle. So we've got some serious digestive uh, issues going on. The functional range, 13 to 18 milligrams per deciliter. So much more tighter. The functional high can be an indication of low stomach acid or dehydration. So it's interesting because low stomach acid can show up on either side of this. Um, so functional high BUN, this is another, and also another marker associated with dehydration. So if we're seeing the high albumin, um, you know, and along with this, right. And, uh, I think there was another marker that I was talking about, like, uh, high hematocrit or something like that. Um, then we're thinking dehydration, high sodium, high potassium, like I was talking about before, um, dehydration functional high BUN and albumin usually indicates dehydration again. Functional low BUN can indicate malnutrition, celiac disease, or low stomach acid. All right, optimal range for creatinine for men. Now with creatinine, you may see it elevated if somebody's just worked out, right? If they get their, their blood test done right after they exercise. So usually I'll tell, tell people not to exercise the day before they get their blood test. That way their creatinine can get back in balance because creatinine is a breakdown product it's a chemical waste product generated from muscle metabolism. We're really looking at what's happening with the kidneys is what we want to look at. So if there's a lot of kidney damage, we're going to have higher amounts of creatinine. However, again, if we work out intensely, that's going to elevate our creatinine. Also taking like creatine supplements can also cause that. So we got to look out for those things. But outside of that, if it's high, it could be related to dehydration again. So we're looking at our other dehydration markers, BUN, albumin. Um, it could be kidney, kidney problems. So we're going to want to look at your glomerular filtration rate, your GFR. We want to look at your phosphorus, um, different things like that. Your BUN, of course, uh, prostate issues could be associated with that, uterine problems. And then reasons for very low levels. And you'll see this, especially with older kind of frail women, it's just very little muscle mass, right? So if we don't have much muscle, we're not going to produce much creatinine. And then could also be related to liver problems. So, you know, checking liver enzymes is always a good idea there too. Now, glomerular filtration rate, this should be over 90. Your stages of chronic kidney disease, or when you see your, well, stage one is, is a healthy GFR, but there's, there's protein in the urine and some sort of evidence of kidney damage. Maybe your BUN's high or something like that. Um, stage two, GFR of 6089. So once the GFR drops under 90, we're thinking, okay, there's probably something going on. The kidneys aren't working as well. Now, you're not always going to see proteinuria. It could just be a functional imbalance where the kidneys aren't functioning as well as they should. But if you do see proteinuria, this person may have chronic kidney disease in stage two, stage three, 30 to 59, stage four, 15 to 29, and then stage five, typically not seeing stage five because really stage four and five, by the time you get to stage four, they want to put you on dialysis, right? You're in severe state of chronic kidney disease. So you're in dialysis by that point. So functional perspective, you know, we're not seeing people typically in that state. Um, sodium, sodium is an important mineral and electrolyte. It's critical for various basic body functions, including fluid maintenance, muscle function, nerve function, important for acid base balance and osmotic pressure. A dehydration, high carb diet, high sodium diets, insulin resistance will all drive it up. Insulin causes us to retain sodium. And so your sodium levels will go up if you have more insulin, if you have more insulin in your blood. Also high stress, because high stress causes higher cortisol and higher aldosterone. And aldosterone is a causes sodium retention. So we have more sodium in our blood. The optimal range for sodium is between 137 and 143. High levels, again, can indicate dehydration, especially we're going to look at potassium next. High sodium, high potassium, high albumin, high BUN, we're thinking dehydration. Kidney problems could also be an issue. High carb diet or adrenal stress. Low levels may develop because of a low salt diet. Obviously, you're not even just not getting enough salt. Um, might be, you know, low levels, typically not dehydration, but you may just not have enough. You may have sweat out. A lot of sodium. So that could be a factor. If you sweat a lot of it out, 
as opposed to just not drinking or as most to not just not drinking enough uh, or adrenal exhaustion. Now, potassium is another critical mineral and electrolyte. We need to look at potassium is critical for proper muscle function, heart function. It serves as a buffer within your cells and also as the main electrolyte of your intracellular fluid. Hypertension and kidney disease can often cause imbalances, both low and high levels. Dehydration, adrenal issues, poor sodium levels or insulin resistance may also cause problems. So typically with insulin resistance, we're gonna see low potassium, high sodium, low potassium. Also with adrenal hyperfunction, when the adrenals are producing a lot of hormone, a lot of cortisol, a lot of aldosterone, we're gonna see, tend to see high sodium, low potassium. However, when the adrenals are no longer able to respond well to stress or the, our receptor sites for those adrenal hormones are low, then you know a condition we'll call uh, adrenal exhaustion, then we're not able to retain the sodium. So we tend to have lower sodium and we retain more potassium. And so we can have higher potassium. So that can be an issue. And of course, different kidney problems can be a, can be a problem as well. Chloride, chloride is another essential electrolyte. And I'll have a chart kind of going, going over how the adrenals impact these as well. So just uh, hold on one minute for that. Chloride, again, another essential electrolyte impacts pH balance, fluids, critical element in the development of hydrochloric acid, right? So chloride's in there. Um, adrenal stress and adrenal failure is often behind low chloride levels while stress, insulin levels, or insulin resistance or aspirin use are all common culprits of higher levels. So using aspirin, use, uh, being under stress, having higher cortisol and aldosterone, which causes retention of sodium, also causes retention of chloride, and uh, higher amounts of insulin also causes retention here. So the optimal range for chloride is 100 to 106. Elevated levels of chloride, we're thinking stress, high salt diet, kidney problems, or too much aspirin. So good thing to look at. Low levels of chloride typically are gonna indicate adrenal fatigue, um, low stomach acid, B1 deficiency, or kidney issues, right? So low stomach acid, adrenal failure, kind of moves there with sodium. So if we have adrenal hyperfunction, we're gonna have higher chloride. If we have adrenal failure, Potassium goes up, sodium goes down, chloride goes down. Now, B1 deficiency is also a key marker too. We're going to look at some other things, LDH and um, your carbon dioxide levels that can be related to B1 deficiencies as well. So summarize that with the adrenals, the adrenal pattern, when you have higher cortisol, cortisol is a glucocorticoid, so it's causing more sugar. It's breaking down glycogen, causing sugar levels to increase in the blood, you're going to tend to have higher blood sugar. You're going to have higher sodium levels, low potassium, high chloride. When you have adrenal hypofunction, so low uh, function, you're going to have lower cortisol, lower aldosterone. You're going to have lower fasting blood sugar. You're going to have lower sodium levels, high potassium, low chloride. Okay. So these are patterns to just look out for right there with the adrenals. Now, phosphorus, your typical range there, that's another you know, key, uh, key mineral that, that we can look at in your blood. Range is 3.5 to 4.0 milligrams per deciliter. It's involved in bone growth and acid-base balance. High levels, we're thinking bone growth like a child might have uh, high levels of phosphorus, could be a fracture. Or if that's not the case, and we're thinking kidney disease or low parathyroid function, low levels, we're going to think vitamin D deficiency, hyperparathyroidism, or low stomach acid levels. Okay, so if your 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 phosphorus is low, vitamin D deficiency. All right, vitamin D helps us basically maintain our phosphorus levels. Same thing with normal uh, parathyroid function. And then we may not be absorbing it very well either. So we may have low stomach acid levels. Blood calcium levels, about 50% of our blood's calcium is protein bound. The other half is ionized. Your optimal range is 9.2 to 10.1. Now, the reasons why it may go up higher, you may have too high to toxicity of vitamin D, for example, would cause it to go way up high. 
hyperparathyroidism, which causes more, um, which main, helps maintain calcium in your blood, right? So if you have too much parathyroid, uh, it helps maintain your phosphorus and your calcium in the blood for bone building. So that would cause it to go up too much. And then hyperthyroidism also can cause more calcium in the blood. Reasons for low levels, pregnancy, because a lot of that calcium is going into building the bones of the developing baby. Low vitamin D, so we're not going to, vitamin D is very important for helping, again, to optimize the amount of uh, calcium in, our, in your blood and for overall calcium metabolism. You may have a diet deficient in calcium, of course. You may not be absorbing it well, so low stomach acid again. You may be you may have bone turnover disorder like osteoporosis where you're needing to use more, put more and more in the bones because the bones are catabolic. So we may see low calcium with that. Hypothyroidism, uh, which also plays an important role with mineral absorption, your thyroid function does. And then hypoparathyroidism. Also, you're not going to be able to um, maintain the level of, of calcium in your blood as you would like, right? Um, let's see, carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide, this is a representation of serum biocarbonate concentration in your blood. So it's not really carbon dioxide, it's more serum bicarbonate. Bicarbonate is an alkaline substance. So high levels here, we would call metabolic alkalosis, right? Low levels, we call metabolic acidosis. So your clinical range is 20 to 29, but your functional range is 23 to 27. And so reasons for high clinical range, metabolic alkalosis, lung problems, emphysema, use of diuretics or severe vomiting can all cause it to go real high. Now, it's, I don't see it high very often. I typically see it low. Okay. And the reason why you might see it low, blood sugar. Blood sugar is probably the number one reason. Of course, malnutrition in general, diarrhea, vomiting. If somebody was just recently very, very ill, um, they may have very low levels. Okay, or very high levels, right? Their acid base balancers can be severely disrupted by that. Now, your functional range 23 to 27. So, reasons for a high functional range, if it's high, we got to be thinking breathing issues, pulmonary problems, right? So, they're not getting enough oxygen in if it's high to, uh, you know, create balance here. Reasons for low functional range, and you may even notice that they are hyperventilating, right? Um, they're just breathing really, really fast as well. So you can also try to notice that if you're seeing it high. Reasons for low functional range, poor blood sugar regulation, uh, vitamin B1 deficiency again. So that's a good thing to look out for. If you see low carbon dioxide, low LDH, right? And also low chloride, those can all be signs of a B1 deficiency. LDH is lactose dehydrogenase, which... I will be talking about when we talk about blood sugar, inflammation, and also liver in, in future videos as well that you can look at. So let's talk about stomach acid and the stomach acid pattern. We're almost finished here, but stomach acid is so important. It helps sterilize the food. Protein digestion is critical. Helps us absorb minerals as well, like zinc, calcium, magnesium, um, phosphorus, right? All of those critical things really helps us with that activates intrinsic factor for vitamin B12 absorption, iron, iron is another uh, big factor. You know, we didn't really talk about that as much with the anemia, but super important. If we don't have enough stomach acid, we're not gonna be able to absorb iron as effectively as well. So we can end up with an anemic tendency. Very important for closing the esophageal sphincter so we don't get acid reflux jumping up and also helps open the pyloric sphincter and, and um, triggers the release of bile bicarbonate, and as well as uh, pancreatic enzymes in the small intestine. So critical, critical functions that stomach acid has. Now, your low stomach acid pattern, this is a pattern to look out for on your functional blood analysis, low total proteins. So if it's like 6.9 or less, we start to edge in this direction. Okay, is there something going on here? Low globulins, if they're under 2.4, with low BUN, under 13, if we have a high albumin to globulin ratio up over two, low chloride under 100, high MCV, right? So you may also see MCH and MCHC high as well, but MCV is the critical one. 
uh, if that's over 92. Low phosphorus, okay? So low phosphorus under 3.5, low calcium under 9.2. So if we're seeing that pattern, we have to be thinking low stomach acid. And if you have other available labs, you may also see low zinc levels under 90, low B12 under 800, low serum iron. We talked about that earlier. Um, 85 to 130 was the optimal range for serum iron. So if it's under 85, then that would be an issue as well. Okay, so for low stomach acid. Now, liver enzymes. And I'm gonna do a future video just all about liver testing, go a deep dive on different uh, phases and stages of, um, of liver detox. But for, for the purpose of this video, what we wanna understand is ALT, okay? Alanine aminotransferase, High levels can be an indication of liver stress. So normal range is 10 to 26. Low levels are a B6 deficiency, typically. High levels are sign of liver stress. And if your ALT is abnormally high, but your AST, GGT and ALP are more in the normal range, right? At least compared to your ALT, you're thinking liver specific issue. There's definitely a liver issue going on. Now, whereas AST, the range is the same, okay? There's another uh, liver enzyme here, but it also is heavily involved with your muscles, your heart, your kidneys. So if you see that high, but you don't see the same level of height, like if it's significantly higher than the ALT and the GGT, then we're thinking probably outside the liver, some sort of issue maybe in the muscle, heart, kidneys. We can look at like your BUN, creatinine, we can look at C-reactive protein for heart. We can look at LDH. If your LDH is real high, it could be an issue with heart. So, um, so anyways, we're looking at that. We're thinking outside the liver then. GGT, if we have a, an abnormal elevation there compared to ALT and AST, we're thinking biliary stress, some, something along the biliary tree. So that means your bile duct, right? So it could be in the gallbladder, could be in the bile duct of the liver, um, but oftentimes a bile stone, right? Gallstone can cause a high GGT and um, also uh, glutathione depletion can also cause this. Low levels, again, B6 deficiency. And then your alkaline phosphatase. So alkaline phosphatase uh, can be an indication of liver and biliary stress. Uh, low levels can be an indication if it's high and low levels can be an indication of zinc deficiency. So I'm thinking zinc uh, when I see low levels of alkaline phosphatase should be ideally 55 to 95 and really like 60 to 90 in that range. Um, now, this is another test you can get. You can get done your plasma zinc and serum copper. So again, I was talking about zinc with your alkaline phosphatase. Well, we know that zinc and copper are trace minerals that play an important role in a number of physiological pathways. And oftentimes people are very low in zinc because they have, for example, low stomach acid levels, blood sugar imbalances, poor nutrient absorption. They're not consuming enough zinc. And so I often see this low, it should be between 90 and 135. And then I look at copper as well, because a lot of people have high copper, low zinc, and that's a really big problem. Um, it's it's going to cause a lot of issues with immune function, with skin health, um, you know, with, um, with really a, a whole wide range of things, our, our, our different sensations, our ability to smell and, um, you know, and taste food and things like that. Our fertility plays a big role of fertility, um, breast health for women, prostate health for men, uh, all of those types of things. So zinc copper ratio should be between one and 1.2 ideally, right? So a little bit more zinc, plasma zinc than serum copper. So that's what we're going to look at. Magnesium is the easy one to add on to your lab as well. Should ideally be between 2.0 and 2.6. Now, magnesium plays a really critical role in the body, but this measurement itself is not really a great measurement of overall magnesium levels. However, if we do see it low, like under two, okay, we know that person needs a lot more magnesium, okay? But we can also look at different symptoms, poor cognitive processing, headaches, uh, chronic migraines, chronic pain, fatigue, tight muscles, right? Heart arrhythmias, different things like that. We might think they need a little bit more magnesium as well, but we can also look, you know, again, serum magnesium should be up over two. If it's not, you know, definitely want to support the magnesium levels. And, you know, we offer all these, all these and so much more of course with our comprehensive blood analysis. 
So guys, hopefully you got a lot out of this training. You learned a lot. You were able to go through this with your complete blood count, your comprehensive metabolic panel. So, you know, hopefully you guys got a lot out of this and we'll see you guys in a future training. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.